This is Conquering Columbus. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Conquering Columbus podcast, where we interview leaders from around Columbus every week with the goal of understanding their journey and what's made them successful. Today on the show, we're talking with Brent Crawford, principal and founder of Crawford Hoying. Early on in the show, we talked with Brent about how he was inspired to get into the real estate business by his college landlord. Got into the business by accident in a way in that I moved into a house on Ohio State's campus and my first landlord, it was his very first house that he'd ever purchased. And during that year, he purchased a second and a third house and I was watching what he was doing and he'd asked me if I would help with some yard work and some interior renovations. That was exciting to me. It just seemed like Monopoly that he was playing. And Monopoly as a kid was my favorite game, hands down. Later, we talk about what has kept Brent motivated throughout his career and the importance of surrounding yourself with great people. Do great things with great people and you get great results. Often people focus on the money is the first thing they look at and it ends up poorly for them because they're so focused on cutting expenses and and doing things that seem like they're going to get more money out of the deal from from going that route. But we don't we don't take that route. If you surround yourself with great people, whether it be the partners that you're working with, uh, whether it be the city that you're developing in, whether it be the lender you're working with, uh, who are your architects, engineers, designers, we really just focus on doing collaborations with a amazing people. We wrap up the show talking about how people often place limitations on their own achievements and Brent's mindset on taking risks. I never limit myself to what's possible. And it's not about a number per se, but if you put out and say, we want to grow by X percentage, typically in life and in business, people only do what they've written down. So if you wrote down and said, I'm just going to make a number, I'm going to do a million dollars in business next year. Guess what you're going to achieve to typically, you're going to achieve to a million dollars. So why would I put a cap on what's possible? We always sort of say that just because it's never been done before doesn't mean it's not a good idea. So a lot of what we do as a company are things that have never been done before. And that's okay because that's where greatness typically comes from. Josh and I had a great time talking with Brent and we're confident you're going to get a lot out of this episode. With that, let's dive into the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. This is your co-host, Mike. And today it's me and Josh in the booth. Josh, what's going on? Not much, man. I'm excited for our interview today. Are you going to talk about the weather? Uh, no, I'm not going to talk oh, about the weather. I'm going to switch it up. I actually, I think I talk about the weather because I do the same thing every day in my life. But now, today I switched it up. I had some brewed cacao that I was telling you about earlier. Mm-hmm. That's supposed to be an alternative to coffee. And uh, I mean, the has problem- been around a long time and it doesn't have alternatives for a reason. Well, so here's the problem with brewed cacao is that they put on the bag, it's an alternative to coffee, but it doesn't give you any energy level similar to coffee. So now I'll never drink it again. Well, if you were if you were a better brewed cacao marketer, you would benchmark it to water. I think you have to be careful about what you say here because this is like a published podcast. So Andy, here, if anything that Josh <laughs> just said broke marketing laws, please edit look. it. And the last thing I'll say before we introduce our guest is we talk about Andy a lot. I've never met Andy in person. So I never have either. Andy, we got to meet up for a drink if you're listening. Well, you are because you're doing the editing. So let's meet up sometime. Andy does great work. If you guys have a podcast or anything else that needs recording. Reach out to Andy. It's Andy at Waveform. We'll find the email and send it. With that said, let's go ahead and introduce our guest today, Brent Crawford. So Brent is joining us and he is the principal and founder of Crawford Hoying, a real estate development firm managing several communities throughout Ohio. Brent is responsible for managing $1.3 billion in development and over 16 million square feet of properties. Uh, He taught property management and real estate trends at the Fisher College of Business at The Ohio State University and regular returns as a guest speaker. He also serves on the boards of Sophisticated Systems Children's Hospital Foundation and The Ohio State Sports Medicine Center. He is the current president of the Center for Real Estate at The Ohio State University and is also a member of the Columbus Partnership. 
He is also a 1995 graduate of The Ohio State University, holding a bachelor's degree in communications. We're really excited to have Brent on the show to talk about everything Crawford Hoying is doing and learn a little more about what made Brent and his team successful. So welcome to Conquering Columbus, Brent. Thanks. Thanks for having me. appreciate it. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us today. And, uh, you know, the first place we always like to start is just get a little bit of background on yourself, your story, and, uh, you know, maybe as far back as have you always lived in Ohio. Yeah, sure. I grew up in Batavia, Ohio, down near Cincinnati, a little small farm town. I think like a lot of kids from farm towns, I was excited to get out of that town. So it's why I chose Ohio State. I had 60 kids in my class and so couldn't wait to get out to get something a little bit bigger and realize what uh, might be out in the world besides uh, what I saw in my little small town. So what about on the family side? Was it an entrepreneurial family growing up? It was not actually. So my, you know, my mom was a hairdresser. My dad was a typesetter, very conservative people, took little risk in their life ever. And so, you know, where I am today and the person I turned out to be is, is completely different than who, who they are and how they raised me. So, you know, I put it to genetics, I guess, in some, some manner, not necessarily theirs, but somewhere in my, in my past, because um, yeah, we certainly have lived a different life. And so you get to Ohio State, were you pretty clear on the direction you wanted to take your life at that point or like most other undergraduate college kids just still figuring things out? Yeah, I had no idea whatsoever what I what I wanted to do in my life. I, I think as a high school student, I had an idea that I wanted to do something great. Just didn't know what that great thing was. Uh, I think I'd had an entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial mind about what's possible uh, and sort of never limited myself about what was possible in life. But it wasn't really until I got into college and took advantage of an opportunity, which we'll talk about. But yeah, I didn't really have a clear path. I actually started and uh, was a political science major to start. And really, that was the path I wanted to go. Never done a drug in my life, never smoked a cigarette just because I solely wanted to be into politics, but worked at the governor's office my freshman year and realized pretty quickly I did not want to be in politics after doing that. What was it about it, that experience that changed your mind? I mean, the true, in quotation marks, politics of it, even in the office, just watching how things worked and the fact that common sense didn't really come into play in a lot of decisions. And that was frustrating to me as, you know, sort of a budding entrepreneur, at least in my mind, about how things should work in life and how things get done. And it was it was just frustrating to me. And I sort of realized at that point that it's probably not the path for me being in that sector that I wanted sort of control of my own destiny. Being an entrepreneur back in that time was not really like the appealing or, or attractive thing to do. So you go through that experience freshman year and you sit back and you start to reflect and, and what are you thinking and what do you decide to do at that point? Yeah, so I switched to communications. Uh, had an idea to be on the radio, to be on TV at that point. Liked to talk, uh, enjoyed that part. So I'd switch, enjoyed my classes, had great professors in that uh, in that area. But really got into the business by accident in a way in that I moved into a house on Ohio State's campus. And my first landlord, it was his very first house that he'd ever purchased. And during that year, he purchased a second and a third house. And I was watching what he was doing. And he'd asked me if I would help with some yard work and some interior renovations. I was relatively handy, thanks to my to my dad. That was exciting to me. It just seemed like Monopoly that he was playing. It was three houses on the same street. And Monopoly, as a kid, was my favorite game, hands down. And so I thought to myself, why, why couldn't I do that? And so that was sort of the genesis of getting into the real estate business. And so the idea is always nice. And then people, you know, it's like, it feels good on a Friday night and, and you watch other people doing it successfully. And then you got to get down and start doing the work and you realize all the, the challenges that come into it. And you obviously hit those challenges and kept pressing forward. How did you go about in the early days in that zero to one phase and like going after your first property and, and actually getting things off the ground. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty cool store, really. I, I knew I wanted to do it, but couldn't figure the path to do it. My family came from modest means and I had talked to my mom and dad about it and said, I'm interested in doing this. And they said, that's, that's awesome. But you realize we don't have any money. And uh, I had uh, been talking with my girlfriend, now my wife of 27 years. And I'd said to her, hey, I'm interested in uh, and doing this. And do you think there's any chance your grandmother would loan me the $1,500 I need to 
purchased the first house. So I was doing an FHA loan, owner-occupied, 2182 Indiana Avenue, uh, $72,000. And so I said, yeah, I've got the down payment. I went to my parents and said, hey, I would like to do this, but I need a co-signer. I didn't have a job. And generally, they don't like to give you loans with people who don't have jobs. So my parents actually, we got turned down at three banks initially uh, just because of their their income. And finally found a fourth bank that believed in my parents and what I was trying to accomplish, a uh, local community bank, uh, first community bank. And uh, they gave me the first loan. And I knew literally from that moment on, that's what I was going to do the rest of my life. So I moved into the house, moved my friends in with me. I moved in the basement, was making about $500 a month after all expenses. And so it literally only took me three months to pay back that initial loan. And and again, the new immediately, uh, that's what I wanted to do. And so you pay that back and you're enjoying being a landlord and having this cash flow come in. You're finishing up college. Once you finish up, do you continue to stay off on your own? I did, absolutely. So really, it, this was, I call it my second sophomore year because I'd switched majors and still trying to figure out what I wanted to do. But I was all in. I think at that point, I was going to graduate because my parents wanted me to graduate. It was important. I wasn't going to stop at that point. So I was still going to school full time, but then convinced my girlfriend to buy the house across the street and do the same thing. So she bought bought a house uh, directly across, moved her friends in. We then pulled that money to buy a third house that same year. And so then, you know, one turns to three. And I think where the story is pretty unique, and I, I've applied it to my to my life really and thinking about how entrepreneurship works in business and relationships is I went back to my high school to visit my history teacher and my basketball coach. When I was a freshman in high school, he was my least favorite person. He was very difficult on me, very challenging, especially as a coach. But coaches often do that, right? They're just trying to break you a little bit and mold you and if they believe in you and see something in you. So he became my favorite teacher by the time I graduated. So I went back and told him what I was doing, very excited. You know, in the summer, like you do, you go back and, and visit your high school. Told him what I was doing. And he said to me, Brent, I'm actually, you know, I'm in the business as well. I own rental property, which I did not realize uh, being in high school. And he said, I'd be interested in, in doing deals with you if you want to partner on something. I had not thought about other people's money in that sense at that point. I had borrowed the money from my, my girlfriend's grandmother, but not in, in the sense of investing. And I was surprised because he had the shittiest houses you've ever seen. Uh, that he lived in, very small, tiny house, had really shitty cars. But the reality is he was a multimillionaire. And so he had said, hey, I'll, I'll be interested in partnering with you on it. I had not thought about it. So I didn't even know what a structure. So I literally just threw out and said, how about if I do all the work and you put the money in and we split the profits 50-50? He said, great. And I think the unique part of the story is that I did find a house, 2228 Indianola Avenue. Uh, right when I got back, I called him and I said, I found a house, $58,000. He said, let's do it without much else to it. This is what I think I can rent it for and so forth. So when we go to close on the house, the title company called and said they messed up the closing. They only put the title in your name and not in his name as well. So I called him and said, we're going to have to delay the closing. And he said, no, don't worry about it. You can just leave it in your name. And I was shocked. I mean, taken back, right? It's That's a lot of trust. He then uh, overnighted $58,000 money or a check to me in my personal name. So I closed on the house in my personal name, no paperwork, no documents. And this is just from my history teacher. So I think it was that first moment where I recognized where relationships matter, where trust matters, and build upon that really the rest of my career. And and, and somebody having faith in me, you want to reward that faith that they have in you. And by doing that, I took great care of him and he invested on. And so that was really one of the first catalysts to understanding other people's money and how finances work and leverage. And we did really well on the house. Each made a lot of money relatively, certainly for me at the time as a college student. I think we each made about 30000 when we sold it the following year and a half or so later. And that then, of course, got him confidence to go buy some more property with me. Did you know going into it from the appreciation side, or were you basically valuing these deals based on cash flow and 
just saying, hey, look, if, if we can cash flow and we can cover the mortgage and keep making money, then we'll be okay. Yeah. So I think, you know, real estate today is certainly different than when I started. One, even the internet really didn't exist at that point, right? So all of the infomercials and, and things you find online about investing in real estate didn't really exist. So it was really what I was learning and watching from other people at the time. I was looking at it a cash flow perspective, realizing I can rent it for X and my mortgage payments Y and I can make this amount of money. What hadn't caught on at that time is that neighborhood was transitioning from single family to uh, student housing. And so I was buying at a single family value, not at a at a, an apartment value. So the moment I bought it and then leased it out, it was the revenue stream that increased the value. In that particular case, I had gutted that house pretty significantly down to the studs and redid almost all of it myself, which was a great learning experience uh, for me. And it's where I created a lot of the value from that property. But as soon as I finished, I leased it out for a much higher rate and created the value uh, right out of the gate. Our sponsor is Waveform Music Group. Andy and Carlin have been working with us to take the production of Conquering Columbus to the next level, and Josh and I cannot be happier with the results. Outside of podcast production, Andy and Carlin are experts in songwriting, music production, and sonic branding for companies of all sizes. And to learn more about them, head to their website, createwaveforms.com. That is createwaveforms.com, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. So that's kind of like phase one where we're acquiring these different properties and this real life monopoly situations playing out and you're enjoying it and cash flow and everybody's making money. What does phase two start to look like for you? I think a couple different ways. One is I took a job at Nationwide Insurance at night. Uh, just again, the background I came from, the need for additional income, one to help support what I wanted to do. So I would go to school during the day, try to cram it all in the morning, work on the properties in the afternoon. And then I would work at Nationwide from 4 to 11 p.m which was a fantastic job. Uh, but one of the things that led, uh, led to was the lady sitting next to me was an older lady who didn't need to work, but she was doing it because she was bored. And she would hear me be excited about the properties I was purchasing, purchasing what I was doing, and eventually said, well, what if I gave you $100,000? What, what could you do with it? And so, again, it started to multiply from there where I did that a couple properties with her. She did really well. She passed along to a couple friends. They then started to invest their money. And then as I started to do these individual deals, I was making more money myself at that point. So it opened up opportunities for me to go to to purchase properties by myself. So when I graduated from college, I had a little over 100 units in the campus area. So it escalated rather quickly from there. And part of it's my personality of not having fear and realizing that, you know, they're just zeros. And so really just, again, running into different people uh, who believed in what I was doing and, and were passionate and trusted me and, and started to invest money in me. And, and again, we can talk more about how, it, how, you know, how do you go from one house to, you know, we had 8,000 apartments in Columbus at one time and now have transitioned to much more dense mixed use hotels, warehouses and things like that. Yeah, and just the idea of getting the bank trust to get that many units in such a short period of time, like I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around how mm -hmm. you were able to accomplish that. Well, the first one's the hardest always. And so when people ask about getting into the business and they always say, well, how do you get to 100? And I have friends who want to get in the business, but they don't want to do one. They want to do a hundred. And I said, you can't do a hundred without one. And so you just got to build the confidence the very first time to do it. And typically, uh, which is why somebody will say they want to get in the business and they'll say, I stopped at Chase Bank to talk to Chase about doing my first deal. That's not where you want to go. You want to go to a local community bank where you can meet the lender, you can meet the president of the bank, develop a relationship because banking, while it is a numbers game, is also a confidence game. The lender has to believe that you're going to do what you say you're going to do. And at a place like Chase, it's, they're just far too big. They don't really care. It's truly a numbers game for them. They might say they're relationship driven or larger banks like that. I'm not picking on Chase, but it's the first one. And once you get the first one and the second one, it becomes relatively easy at that point. It's then submitting the documents. They're not learning about you. They're learning about what the individual deal is. And if you've proven you can do it, they'll have trust in you. And our, you know, where we are today as a company is no different than we were then. We've developed 
confidence with a lot of lenders. And so it's not a matter of whether we are going to be approved. They're assuming we're bringing them a good deal. And at what point does it become more complicated on the financial side? So like, I got to imagine you start to get into more of these development projects or apartment complexes or like hotels, like you were saying, and then then you're kind of getting into financial engineering where, you know, having a background in communications has got to be a bit challenging to jump into this. Yeah, I would say it. You know, fortunately for me, I've been always been relatively good with numbers. Oddly speaking, I'm horrific at math. In fact, I, you know, I had admission condition to get into Ohio State just based on my math because I like took algebra one and geometry in high school. I had an absolute fear of math, but I sort of joke. I said, if you put a dollar sign next to it, I can tell you any number of any number. And it's just really things that are applicable to what I want to do in life, then I dig into it. And so from a numbers perspective, I always had, had a great understanding of how the numbers work. But if it's if it's uh, abstract theory as it relates to math, that's not that's not my game. But you're right; it's it's um, one of the most important parts is to understand how the numbers work. And the reality is, as we've grown, our staff has grown, and the people and the quality of our certainly our financing staff, you know, our CFO and others in the company are incredible financial wizards as it relates to how do you structure these deals because the deals, you know, when they're a hundred thousand dollars is one thing; when they're a hundred million or two hundred million on a deal, you know, it's a, it's a whole different animal. How has that team changed over time? I mean, what does your team look like today compared to, you know, the one man in, in 1995? Yeah, so we were, or I was a one-man shop, and, and you know, certainly my wife was was part of it early on. She was, a, as I always joke, my my maintenance uh, person, especially as it related to gas furnaces and hot water tanks, because I didn't like gas. So if there was ever one out, I called her to, to come fix the gas uh, furnace. But, you know, for a long time, it was just me. I was literally doing every aspect. So a unit would turn, I was painting it, cleaning it, doing all the maintenance, doing all the yard work. That was important to where we are today because it's hard to tell people what to do if you've never done it yourself. And so it was a really critical part for me as for team members to gain respect for what I was doing, especially the early staff when it's bringing on a maintenance techs on, it was easy for me to say, this is how you do it. Or I understand the things that you're going through that make your job a challenge because I've also done it, done it myself. So for a very long time, it was just me. And then I had one and then two. And, you know, a lot of lessons learned through that. And we have roughly across all of our lines of business, 225, 230 employees now, most of them based in the Dublin office and uh, and also in our Dayton uh, location as well. But really, escalating and elevating the quality of the staff. Even if you, you know, if I go back 10 years and realizing how far we've come in the quality of our personnel, and it's just recognizing and learning through the process that you get what you pay for. And I always used to think, well, you know, if two candidates and one's 75,000 and one's 100,000, well, let's, we're going to take the 75,000. And typically you do get what you pay for. The $100,000 pays for themselves the, per, the moment they walk through the door. And so really focusing now and thinking through how do we build the most incredible team possible is really one of the main focuses of what I do now. And so you said 95 was the year you finished undergrad? Yep. So take me from, I mean, there's so much that happens between 95 and 2021. Yeah. Are, yeah. are you are you rushing at that point? Like, is your drive at that point to create something that's that's like very monumental and, and kind of monstrous? And like, is it it's a drive for wealth at that point? Or is it just kind of you're really enjoying the pursuit? It's the pursuit. I have rarely ever thought about money. It's still the case today within our company. We don't focus on money. We, we sort of do great things with great people and you get great results. Often people focus on the money is the first thing they look at and it ends up poorly for them because they're so focused on, cutting expenses and, and doing things that seem like they're going to get more money out of the deal from from going that route, but we don't we don't take that route. Again, just if you surround yourself with great people, whether it be the partners that you're working with, uh, whether it be the city that you're developing in, whether it be the lender you're working with, uh, who are your architects, engineers, designers, we really just focus on doing 
collaborations with amazing people. And it took me a while to learn that, right? To your point, I mean, from when I graduated and to where we are today, I mean, one of the obviously critical parts of my life and, and where our company changed was my meeting Bob Hoying on the golf course, which was a very random situation in my life. He and I both are golfers, love to golf, but neither of us like to play with strangers. And it truly was a random day, a Tuesday in uh, 1997 when I went to go play, he went to go play and there was no openings. And the guy said, you can go out and play. There's a guy on the tee box if you want to. And I normally would have always said no, but I really wanted to play that day. And it turned out he was on the tee box that day. Mm. And I knew who he was because we graduated the same year and he certainly did not know me. And I had a great round of golf. We hit it off. He asked, you know, what I did for a living. I told him and he said, I, you know, I have interest in the business at some point in some business outside of football. So I want to make sure I start to prepare myself, which is obviously a smart decision. You know, we ended up having dinner. That was the end of that story. And so he started to come back during the off seasons to sort of learn the business. Uh, so he was in the NFL, you know, six years or so, and then would come back every off season, come into the office, didn't know anything really about what we did as a, as a company, but really learning every single day being in the office. And so this is 97, you're growing over time. At this point, are you still just focused on single and, and multi-unit residential properties? Yeah, so we had gone from, you know, my original properties were all single family, and then it was a duplex, and then it was a triplex, and then a 13-unit and a 23-unit. And starting to realize that having these properties spread all over campus, and while they're all on campus, for the most part, it's still a very difficult task. I was living in Hilliard at the time, so every time I got a phone call to drive from Hilliard back to campus do what I need to do, get back to Hilliard and get another phone call that something else had happened. And so just logistically, it became very difficult for me. I was working virtually around the clock to, to take care of all the properties and said, you know, what if I sold all of these properties and bought something larger? And I'd been driving around looking at properties and seeing the properties around the outer belt that you see that have a flag, you know, flagpoles and the clubhouse. And, and you can see, you know, 80, 100, 200 units in a single location. So I had made the decision at that point to sell all of my campus properties. It was fortuitous timing based on the market. So I'd bought uh, when the market was down, sold when the market was high, and took those profits then to start purchasing larger property. And I bought an 80-unit property in Hilliard, which is one of the earliest uh, uh, purchases of, of scale of that size, and realized it was all in one location. I cut my work time in half while making more profit. So yeah, that, that was sort of the first big jump when I realized buying something at scale in one location can do wonders. And then when does development start to come into the picture? Yeah, I always think about if you look at developers in Columbus, most of them started just like I did. So very few people, you don't really start in the development business because it's the most complex of all real estate business. It's also by far the most risky part of, of the business. And so it takes years of being in the business in general, understanding financing, how financing works, you know, the operations of a property, because what you build a property, you have to eventually operate it. So, right, so you have to understand that that piece of it. I'd certainly been watching as I'd been acquiring existing properties, and some of them had just been built. So Don Kenny is the name. It was a, it had been a great mentor to me, one of the biggest developers. In fact, I think he's the biggest developer in Columbus, Ohio history as it relates to apartments. I was buying new product from him. And eventually I got to the point like, well, why can't I do that? you know, do that myself. And so there was the transition point. But again, it's a very difficult transition point to going from buying existing to buying a piece of dirt. And really where that transition started, we sort of recognized early on that the general contracting portion of that's the most risky. You know, who, who's building it? And Bob's father owned a construction company with two other partners. And it was, they were considering retirement or doing something different. So Bob and I purchased that company in 2004. Relatively small company at the time, focused on doing initially a lot of our stuff, but, you know, 50% other outside work, which they still do today. Um, but we've grown that that company really substantially along with what Crawford Hoying's growth has been. But then we've 
really done of a lot of outside other works, banks, hotels, uh, healthcare facilities, things like that. But that's been a critical piece is having that because, you know, where people get themselves in trouble in the development business is not really having a good understanding on the construction side of things because there's a lot of unknowns there. And you need to make sure you have somebody aligned with what your ultimate goals are. And certainly if it's a company that you own, they're aligned for the benefit of the company. Are there any dynamics or hurdles that you had to overcome from like a mentality or, or operational standpoint and bringing on a partner into the business and how that piece of the puzzle came together? Yeah, it was a big decision for me at the time. I had always done everything myself. And so the thought of bringing somebody else on was a challenge. And it was, um, I remember even, you know, my brother as an example said, are you sure you want to do this? Are you really sure you want to do this? And I thought there was things that he could bring to the table. One was this construction piece through his, through his dad. He was a passionate guy. He's a hardworking guy. And, you know, even a relationship perspective, he was well-known in Columbus. And I made some assumptions that he would be able to bring some people to the table, which he certainly did. Uh, and so it took a lot um, to give up on that. But I'm typically one, once you make the decision or I make a decision, I'm like, that's the decision I made. I'm going to go and find the positive in that decision. And I move on fully in that respect. And so once we once we became partners, you know, we were all in together. And, you know, ironically, and the reality is we spend more time together than we do with our spouses. So we've been together 25 years or so at this point. And uh, it's been an incredible partnership. We've probably had two or three disagreements in 25 years. And we, and part of it's because we understand each other's strengths and what's important to us, what we're passionate about. And so he knows if I'm passionate about something, he lets me run with it and vice versa. And so we're not really battling each other. We let each other take our stands when we need to and, and uh, let each other really excel what we're best at. And a lot of people operating out there, like they might have something good going and they have a candidate that they can see kind of reflects or, or complements their weaknesses. They want to bring them on as a partner, but splitting that pie seems like it can be quite complex. So not to get into like the nuanced details, but as you're looking through something like that logistically, like how the idea of having a partner is nice and, and having somebody else there to make decisions on, but how do you go about doing something like that? Yeah, I mean, to your point, it's not necessarily into the details, but really for me, it was focused on, you know, I'm very much a feel person. And so I can tell you right now, and then, you know, my staff, if they were listening to this day and our people that we work with every day would laugh about the fact whether I had thought through and planned out every detail of that partnership. And the reality is I, I hadn't. What I did is I had a strong feeling about our relationship and I just had a good gut feeling about it. And I you know, most of my decisions or many of them are based on gut feeling. And part of it's just understand, pe understanding people and how they work, how they tick, what their skill sets are. That's one of the things I really focus on and think about. And so in that respect, to your point, I, I hadn't mapped it out fully. Some of that still happens today. Now, fortunately, I have, we have an amazing staff that makes sure to map it out for me. So I'm not necessarily making gut decisions that are, you know, $500 million gut decisions at this point, but it's still a, a very important part of who we are for sure. We're going to take a quick break here to thank one of our sponsors, the Burlett Family Foundation. The Burlett Family Foundation is committed to serving as a trusted partner and resource to organizations striving to improve our community here in Columbus. All right, let's get back to the episode. So, so far, the story's been pretty smooth, right? Like we go from one property, things go smoothly. We're going up, we're going up, mm -hmm. we're going up. Was there ever a point where things didn't seem so smooth, where things got really rocky, where you were concerned that the whole thing was going to collapse? Oh, 100%. Yeah, and I think it's it's something we're very proud of and we're not ashamed to share the story. I think it's an important part of business. And you know, the collapse, the 2008 financial collapse was devastating. We had, fortunately, or I'm going to say unfortunately, had never been through a difficult period. So from the day I bought my first property to 2008, I'd never had a loss on a property. I'd never had a bad deal. Everything had been roses for me. Been very, very fortunate. And 2008 happened. And one of the most challenging parts, it was taken out of our hands. There was little that I could do about it. And what I mean by that is 
when the financial markets collapsed, the lenders were collapsing. As you're well aware, lenders were going out of business. They were going bankrupt. And some of those lenders were our lenders, right? Mm -hmm. And so they were under significant pressure. And so where they could, they were calling loans. So it's a very uh, humble experience when you're thinking you're on top of the world. And literally in a matter of months, everything you ever worked for is at risk. Some very vivid moments. I remember on a Saturday, it was a combination of the financial collapse and the market collapse, right? So I was in the stock market as well. Property values are, have completely collapsed. Stock market has completely collapsed. And sitting with my head in my hands on a Saturday morning, just asked myself, what have I done? You know, at the time, not really realizing that really not much I could have done about the situation. And I look back now and say, what would I have done different? Probably not much. But recognizing what was happening in the moment was, was a challenge. And the reality is it took almost four years. You know, I would say Bob and I looked back, we talked about this recently, it was probably 2000, late 2010, early 2011, maybe even mid, where we're like, I think we're going to be fine. So it was it was um, a difficult challenge and not because we were going to worry about our business, not to say that we weren't, but I was young, still am young. I was like, I would just do it again. I had, was zero worries about that. I would just start a new company and roll with it again. What I was really worried about is we had at that point, a lot of investors couple hundred investors invested in our business and what we did, family fortunes with us. And so we were having people calling on the day, like, am I going to lose all of my money? And you know when it's something when there's a lot of pressure, it's not when it's your money, it's when somebody else's money and and you have somebody's uh, family at stake and their ability to survive and thrive uh, is on your shoulders. That's a lot of pressure. So it's the best thing that ever happened to us, hands down. And there's a few reasons for it. One is the lessons learned through that, right? You find out who your partners are, you find out who you want to be in the trenches with. And certainly Bob and I learned about each other even more so at that point, although we'd been together a while, that was when you really find out who the quality of a person. It's not, it's easy when things are good, but it's when times are tough that you really learn about uh, about life and business. And so the core unit of our company at that point was really stressed and people stuck by us. You know, the people that we were working with every day dug in with us and we battled through. And we also learned about how to run a business because you really got to dig in. When your revenue gets cut by 80 or 90% in 24 hours, uh, you know, over the coming months, and really lasted for years, what are you going to do about it, right? And so we had to learn to tighten the belt from an operations perspective and, and really took a lot from that. And that's benefited us greatly. And I think the other thing that's great about it is Bob and I made an early on decision because we had a lot of investors and, you know, many, many tens of millions of dollars at stake in for, for our investors is we made the decision we're not going to allow a single investor to lose a dollar under any circumstance. And Bob and I took the hit for that individually. So when there was there was a loss at that point, we took the loss for them. And the reason we did is like, we're going to be in this business a very long time and we're going to do what it takes for the business, but also for investors. And that's, that's paid off tenfold. Now, those same investors are still with us today and they've doubled and tripled and quadrupled down with us as partners because they know we got their back. And so as you press forward and you looked at things today, I mean, how many different projects are we a part of? I mean, you're talking about $500 million deals, like you got to be all over the place and just a, an immense amount of complexity from where it first began. So what does it look like right now? We are a pretty complex company. And one of the reasons is we like very difficult things. We thrive on that. So we're not looking for the easy. We're looking for high barrier to entry developments or projects. And there could be a multitude of reasons to why they would be difficult. Some of it could be the city in which you're developing in. It could be the topography of the land. It could be that no one's ever done it before. So there's a whole host of reasons, but we really enjoy those because the cookie cutter things, not to say they can't be financially successful, but that's not what gets our, our blood going. So we've got a phenomenal team now of a lot of similarly minded people. Um, not to say everyone's as aggressive as me. Bob, by the way, is relatively conservative. So we've met in the middle. 
in that respect, he's become far more aggressive. I've become far more conservative because there's a, comes a point in your life, you don't need to take, you know, excessive risk. And so we, we've moved away from that, not to say we ever thought we were taking excessive risk. I didn't. If you have a well-executed plan, it's not risk in my mindset. So we're certainly a sophisticated company now as to how we look at our assets and our diversification. So we are in almost every single as- asset class that exists. Part of it is that we want to be diversified. You know, there are office-only developers, there are hotel-only developers, and imagine, you know, we are friends with hotel-only developers, what that looked like in the past 18 months. It's rebounded significantly, but they were under dire stress. Well, we were fortunate to be equally mixed amongst office and retail restaurant, apartments, hotels, and other asset classes, and that basically allowed us to comfortably get through without much concern at all. But to your point, yeah, we're in lots of different projects. We typically are looking anywhere between 20 and 30 individual deals at a time. Uh, We get opportunities for way more. I would say virtually every single day a new opportunity comes in, but we're able to look at it relatively quickly and make a determination whether it makes sense. And one of the reasons is we're vertically integrated across the board. So from land development at the beginning, so land planners and architects that are in-house, it can really look quickly. And because we own a general contracting company, what can we build on this site? What will make sense here? What's the cost of it? And then we lease everything. So all the commercial leasing, all the property management, we can bring teams together very quickly to look at things to see whether it makes sense. And I certainly think it's a competitive advantage of ours because we do move very quickly in the marketplace, if an opportunity comes, Bridge Park wouldn't be an example where that opportunity came to us on Christmas Eve in 2012, which was just a raw piece of land. If you guys are familiar, it was a defunct driving range and failed strip center, but it came to us and we made a decision really within 24 hours to purchase the property and move forward without having any deal with the city. Because sometimes you just got to recognize what the opportunity is and you got to seize it. And so when you look at that, like your ability to create everything you guys have done today and actually do it from a strategic standpoint where you did vertically integrate, do you look back and think like maybe we should have focused in a one particular, not necessarily across asset classes, but maybe just focused on strictly the development side or just strictly the property management side? No, I don't think we've ever thought that because I think they're all creative to each other. They all help us build on our success. And that again, understanding every facet of it, to be a good developer, you have to understand every element of the process. If you're missing just one, you don't know how. So if we're, if we're just a developer, we're not the manager. And I'm, I'm going to assume we wouldn't have lost all of our expertise in managing, but understanding how properties operate. So when we're developing, we're not doing it in a vacuum. We're bringing in our management team to say, hey guys, this is the design of the building. Does this make sense? Can you operate this efficiently once they've opened? And especially in our case where we're a mixed use developer, where you might have a retail restaurant first floor, office second floor, apartments above, very complex to get it right. And so if you've not had the experience to manage those and operate those, you wouldn't know that what you're about to develop or build doesn't actually work in the field. And so we've never made the decision to do that. And I think the other thing is we're very much about the diversity of thought and the diversity of opportunity. And so warehouse is a great example. We had not done a single warehouse up until we started last year. And so I think we have six or seven warehouse development deals in process, either in construction or development now. And so we would have taken something where we'd done $0 to a few hundred million dollars in 12 months. And it's we saw the opportunity in the marketplace. Columbus, Ohio is one of the best markets in the U.S. You're going to hear some huge news, which you guys probably heard about with the Intel announcement. That'll lead to other development. And so we're pretty excited about diving headfirst into that business. But we had in-house experience with that. One of our principals, Nelson Yoder, had been in the development business on the warehouse side before. So we just tapped into his expertise, brought in some outside expertise. And then we said, once we make a decision to do something, we're going to go. We don't really do anything half-hearted. 
Hey, everybody. Mike here. We're going to take a quick break to talk about one of our sponsors, One Columbus. And we are very excited to partner with One Columbus. They really, really share the same vision as us here at the Conquering Columbus podcast, which is really building up the Columbus region to be one of the most prosperous regions in the United States. And One Columbus serves as the business location resource for companies across central Ohio and around the world as those companies grow, innovate, and compete within the global economy. And they help us lead a regional growth strategy that develops and attracts the world's most competitive companies companies. It grows a highly adaptive workforce and prepares our communities for the future, inspiring innovation across the board. Their mission really is just ensuring the Columbus region is a vibrant place to build businesses and careers. So again, we really appreciate all of their support. You want to learn more about them, go check out their website, columbusregion.com. That's columbusregion.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll be right back into the episode. Have you thought about the future? You know, do you, what are your plans for the future? You continue to expand? Do you want to kind of maintain where you're at? Like, what is what does that look like? Yeah, so we're we're in multiple markets right now. Cincinnati, we're getting ready to start a very large development down there, about 450 million, which we made a commitment to last year, and so we'll break ground here in the next few months. And we had a great meeting today with our architects on find, you know some designs for the buildings, which look incredible. We've been very active in the downtown Dayton market for about five or six years. It's been hugely successful for us, and we have a lot more to expand there. And Something people are surprised about with the Bridge Park. Bridge Park is 60% of the way through. So we have a block under construction now. We're getting ready to start another. And then there's a whole other phases that will be coming to the project. But I think the answer to that question is, you know, I think our team would like to plan out more to say, we're going to do this, that, and the other, you know, over the next few years. But I never limit myself to what's possible. So I'd say, and it's not about a number per se, but if you put out and say, we want to grow by X percentage, Typically in life and in business, people only do what they've written down. So if you wrote down and said, I'm just going to make a number, I'm going to do a million dollars in business next year. Guess what you're going to achieve to typically, you're going to achieve to a million dollars. So why would I put a cap on what's possible? And so I've never allowed myself to put a cap on what's possible in life. And so we're very active in the development business, but we're also very active in operating companies and purchasing or investing in operating companies mainly again, back to things that are accretive to what we do. So whether it be bars and restaurants that we invest in, who are also our tenants in our buildings, one's brands that we can help grow. So if we're going to go to Cincinnati, guess we can bring this brand with us to Cincinnati. We can bring them to Dayton and another market. So we're fascinated about really all aspects of business. And we've hired a bunch of uh, wickedly smart people, but also people who are very curious uh, and I think curiosity is a huge part of, of who we are. People do get fixated on a simple, you know, a single thing. I'm just going to be an office developer. That's just not how our brains work. It's not something I'm I'm interested in. What about work-life balance for you? Like, as you look over the years and even look today, I'm assuming that you've always been consumed because you seem so passionate about what you're doing. But has there been a time where it was unsustainable or have you ever thought like maybe, maybe I'm doubling down too much or have you been able to balance it well? I think if my wife was sitting here, she'd have one answer and I would probably have another. I've I've tried my best. I think to your point, I'm relatively consumed with it. It's in my blood. It's in my genetic makeup. So to say, somebody asked me just yesterday, I think, you know, when do you think you'll retire? I said, as soon as I die, you know, that'll be that same day. So I don't ever see stopping, but I think I've done a relatively good job. I do enjoy traveling. So I do travel. You know, my mind never stops as it relates to the business and what we're doing. It's not even necessarily the business per se, the creation of a building or buying into a business. It's the culmination of the people that we have in our company that's makes me most passionate because if you can bring amazing people and bring them together with amazing skill sets that who also happen to be just amazing people in general, that's when you can do something great. So that's really a focus of mine right now. I'd say it's probably my predominant focus is how do we bring everybody together to create something amazing? And that amazing has no limit, in my opinion. As long as you keep bringing in amazing people, there is you know, really is no limit to what's possible. 
I got one more on my side. It's more of a personal question, so we can cut it if it's, I don't think it'd be too much. But when you look at yourself and like your story is quite incredible, especially doing something from the ground up, essentially. I mean, you've built this all with you and your partners and your incredible team, uh, but nothing was handed down or anything. Your strengths and weaknesses personally, like when you reflect on yourself, what do you think you're really, really strong at? And, and what do you reflect on or do you feel like your greatest weaknesses? That's a great question. I yeah, I think where the business really turned is when I realized what my weaknesses were. And and one of them is just, you know, I, I move very quickly. And eventually you get to a size where moving quick and doing the right thing aren't enough, right? And so from an organizational perspective and bringing in people who say, hey, hey, hold up for a second. Let's get this down on paper. Let's build processes and procedures to make it work. And I, I have never been good at it. And I fully admit it. And I think recognizing that weakness uh, was important. I think with any business, recognizing who is better at something than you are. And so really I can say across the board that virtually every person that we've brought in is smarter than I am. And I don't say that, you know, jokingly, it's, it's true. They're, they're smarter, but where I may be smarter is in how all the pieces and parts fit together and the relationship portion of it, which is a, a critical component. I think, you know, even thinking about education today, not to get off topic, but, you know, Ohio State standards, as an example, now you got to have a 30 ACT, you got to be in the top 10%. I would have never gotten into Ohio State, did not have great grades. But if I look at all the entrepreneurs in Columbus, most of them are like me. And so recognizing there are, there is talent and being intuitive. There's importance in being intuitive and understand how things work and really understand how people work and being able to read a room if I had to have one skill set I could pass on to any person, I would simply say the most valuable asset you can have is the ability to read a room. And so that's probably where my skill set is. And I, I do focus on that and let people who are smarter than me, who have a passion for something, focus on what they're really good at and let me focus what I'm uh, good at. And that's changed all in the last five years. There was certainly a point, even in the last three or four years, where I sat at my desk, I'm like, what, what am I doing? What, what is my role here now? Because we'd brought in so many amazing people who taken off so much off my plate that I had, you know, it took me a moment to sort of realize what's, what's my next phase uh, about who we're going to be. And some of it's doing things like this, you know, spreading about who we are, making new relationships in, in the business world, whether it be tenants, lenders, investors, things like that. So that, that I'm phenomenally passionate about. Well, Brian, I think that's a good place to head towards our last question of the show. And it is centered on the theme here on Conquering Columbus, and that is live uncomfortably. So without telling you too much about why we chose that phrase for a uh, show about entrepreneurs, business owners, and everybody else who's leading in their field, what do you think of when you hear it? How does it apply to your life and career? Yeah, so I read that and thought to myself, well, it's really, it is me. And part of it's, there's a lot of phrases, you know, fortune favors the bold, fortune favors the brave. It's very, very true in life. And it's not to say there's anything wrong with being ultra conservative and settling in on what you want to do in life and sticking to it and setting your plan and you reach your plan and you're done with it. I think for me, I don't feel uncomfortable when I'm doing it, but I think some of the other people in our company do sometimes. And so it's very interesting to watch and see people come from people who don't want to be uncomfortable and all and sort of forcing them to get out of their comfort zone to do something great. We always sort of say that just because it's never been done before doesn't mean it's not a good idea. So a lot of what we do as a company are things that have never been done before. And that's okay because that's where greatness typically comes from. Because really in our business, there's nothing that we've built or that we do that's not been done before relative to a building type or construction type. We're not inventing something new. The process that we go through, it might be different than other people or what might be perceived as the risk that we take to do it might be different than other people. But you got to be willing to step outside of your box 
and take a risk. I mean, for the most part, all great things, again, fortune favors the bold, have been done by people stepping outside of their comfort zone and realizing and just not being afraid. And I think, again, if you, from a culture perspective, and we talk about culture all the time in our office, culture being our most valuable asset by far, bar none. There's no building or property we own that's as valuable as our, our, our culture. And it's creating a culture of, of trust, of being curious about what's in the world. And then again, doing it with great people. And you sort of put all those pieces and parts together. You can become uncomfortable when you realize that you've got people have your back, that you have a plan and you got a passion for it. And I think a lot of what it is, you can be uncomfortable and take chances when you love that potential. And so we love what we do every day. I can't, as you can imagine, I can't wait to go to work every day. And so in that respect, I'm not uncomfortable, but I do enjoy getting other people uncomfortable. Awesome. Well, Brent, thanks so much for joining us and telling your story. Really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And Conquerors, thanks so much for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, leave a like, hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast app you are listening on. You'll hear interviews just like this. We release every Monday. Uh, We appreciate your support. We'll talk to you next week. Bye.